0: 50 years ago this week, the largest and bloodiest prison riot in U.S. history broke out in Upper State New York. But long before that, there is a history of prison cemeteries. First of all, what happens when you die in prison? What rights do you have as a prisoner? What identity do you have as a prisoner? Using the frame of the famous riot at Attica. I want to look a little bit more about the cemeteries of mass incarceration. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View. So, (laughs) over the past few weeks, I realized I was probably gonna have to give a little bit more context than I initially thought. And I have done these type of history episodes before. Um, I have done one on Kent State. I've talked a lot about these events. And as a student of history, I sometimes assume that people know more than they actually do. So I'm going to go a little bit into the background of Attica, and I think it's worth talking about. So much of Attica is still so very present today, particularly when we talk about the events of last summer. Certainly living in Atlanta, the issues surrounding CNN Center the murder of George Floyd, Rayshard Brooks, so much of the racial battle that is locked up in mass incarceration in many ways can be traced directly back to Attica and can be traced back even before that. Attica, more than anything else, is a racial problem and it speaks about Many of the things that, if you know anything about the mass incarceration system here in the United States, are still very prevalent today. And I think it's important to note that when we talk about the cemeteries, likewise, they show a cycle of poverty. They show a cycle of folks who really don't have a whole lot of options when it comes to their burial rights. How do you end up being buried in a prison cemetery? How do you end up not having anyone to claim your body? Well, it's not quite as simple as that. I'm also going to talk about some of the noteworthy examples, some prison cemeteries that you might be familiar with, or some of the probably the more significant ones. But let's start with Attica. So for those of you who might not be familiar with Attica, Attica still exists. Um, It was built... It's a Depression-era prison, so very large, and it sits on 53 acres west of Buffalo, New York, so upper state New York, and the prison building itself looks sort of like Foursquare. If you remember Foursquare back from when you were in elementary school, it looks like that, Um, a big square building with a plush-shaped yard inside, and essentially all four of the walls are a different block. So there's an administration building in front, then there's the actual prison, which if you're going around you know, in the front, you have A block, you have C and D on the sides, and then B is in the far back. And that open area in the middle is essentially four exercise yards for each of the four sections of the prison. And that's what used to be known as Times Square. So when you read a lot about Attica, you talk about the majority of the action that occurred during the prison riot actually occurs in that open space in the center of the prison. Now, behind the prison, you have basically the workshops. So metalworking was a big part of Attica. So there were metal shops back there. There was a tailor shop Um, They had sort of vocational buildings off to the western side of the prison. That was where they had like school and things like that. Um, They had a shoe and tailor shop to the east of the prison. There was an auditorium and a chapel. And I'm just kind of like giving you the layout so you kind of understand what this looked like. Because this is an old prison. And one of the things that you have to realize when we're talking about prison cemeteries is that a lot of the prisons in the United States are very old. And they're in terrible shape. And if they're in terrible shape now, they were also in terrible shape 50 years ago when Attica happened because these prisons were rapidly aging. And what happens is, is that progressively after Attica, you start to have things like class action lawsuits, which I'm going to talk about a little bit later. There also is a major shift demographically. Now, this is not something that necessarily all people know, but the mass incarceration particularly of people of color, does not really happen until after World War II. Prior to that, and this goes for both the North and the South in many ways, Um, the South, it happens a little bit earlier because of Jim Crow. And if you follow me on Instagram, I did a post about Chattahoochee Brook a couple of months ago. I went to the wreath-laying ceremony that they had there. This is because prior to the Civil War in the South, most punishment of black folks occurred because slave owners owned people. So they basically took care of their own, and it's not until after the Civil War and after emancipation where free blacks start to be incarcerated en masse in the South, often for petty crimes, things like vagrancy. Basically, you know, if you were enslaved and then you were no longer enslaved, you were considered a vagrant because you didn't have a job and you weren't gainfully employed. There's a lot of problems with the prison system, both in the North and the South. And this only is exacerbated by what starts to happen in the late 1960s and the early 1970s. And there's a couple of things that happen. So first of all, the war on drugs starts. And so mass incarceration for often petty crimes involving drugs start to rise. Second of all, you have a lot of violence surrounding Vietnam. And as a result, you have a lot of political activists who end up in prison, particularly members of the Black Panther Party. And so the result of this is that the prison at Attica is roughly 60% people of color about 10% of this is Latinx the other like 50% is black and this is why if you look at demographics around Attica it looks like it's an incredibly diverse community when in reality it's almost exclusively white and it's because they count prisoners as citizens of that county now with the exception of one guard at Attica at the time who was Puerto Rican other than that Every member of the staff at Attica was white, including Vincent Mancusi, who he was the head of the prison at the time. So you have a very white population in charge, and you have a very diverse ethnic population within the prison. Now, there is also a lot of other things going on. First of all, the prison is incredibly overcrowded. It's meant to hold about 1,600 at capacity. It has over 2,200 prisoners at the time of the riot. So that's the first thing. Second thing I already mentioned, it's an aging prison. So at this point, this prison's about 40 years old. It's big, it's stone, it's got these 14, you know, gun towers encircling it. The conditions are not great. And by not great, I will talk a little bit more about the conditions in a minute, but they're really bad. So one of the things is, is that there is a lot of unrest among the population because they want things changed. They want to try to push for better conditions. The third thing that happens is that you have a lot going on in terms of just Politically what's going on in the world. So you have the death of Martin Luther King. You have the death of Malcolm X. You have the situation with Fred Hampton. Things just keep rolling. And then eventually you're going to have um, George Jackson at Folsom. So all of these things are sort of magnifying. So you have a lot of political unrest. You have a lot of particularly black men who are leaders in the community dying. The Black Panther Party in particular is a huge target for the U.S. government. All of these things just exacerbate what is already a borderline racial melting pot that is really, really ready to combust. Now, Attica really... You know, they, as early as the spring of '71, so like six months before this happens, there is already a movement to try to improve conditions there. So, for example, in those metal shops that I mentioned earlier, where they are doing work, conditions in the summer months would sometimes get up to over 108 degrees, which is just untenable. It's not human beings are not meant to live in those type of conditions. On top of that, they were getting one shower about every two weeks. So cleanliness um, in terms of pay and fair wage, because they are making a wage for the work that they do. Um, They're making about 58 cents a day, which is low even by prison terms. Um, And they were given one roll of toilet paper per month. So the conditions are awful. Things are very, very bad. And on top of this, there is a lot of victimization, particularly racial-based discrimination, going on within the prison. So all of this really comes to a head on September 9th. Now, as I had already mentioned, um, George Jackson had been killed in San Quentin a few weeks earlier on August 21st. So things were definitely brewing Um, that had prompted a hunger strike. So people knew that the prisoners were unhappy. They had already listed demands. And essentially what happens is it all starts with a man named William Quinn. William Quinn is the first victim and he is essentially trampled and beaten to death. What happens is that you have a gate at Attica fail vale where there is a surge of prisoners. They push through this bolt on the gate has been badly repaired. He is trampled and crushed in the melee. So he is the first to die. After this point, what happens is the remainder of the staff is taken hostage in the outside yard. So in Part D of Times Square in the center of the building. Now, this includes not only guards, but also civilians who worked as, like, supervisors in the metal shops and in the tailor shops and things like that. Now, certain groups, um, particularly... The Muslim Brotherhoods within the prison, they immediately are put in charge of the hostages, and they make sure that anyone who has been injured is released. Like, I know there's a guard that has a broken arm who is released to immediately get medical treatment, but the rest of them are held prisoner and kept there until a couple of things happen, so first of all, that they will they receive a promise that there will be no repercussions for what they have done. Second of all, that they will get these demands satisfied. So these 31 demands, you can find the listing of these. I will kind of briefly run through them just to give you an idea of the type of things that they were looking for. Um, and as you might not, you, you wouldn't be surprised. They are not crazy. They are not asking for anything that seems unreasonable. Some of them may take a little bit of time. So, number one, provide adequate food, water, and shelter for all inmates. Two, grant complete administrative amnesty to all persons associated with this matter. Three, inmates shall be permitted to return to their cells or other suitable accommodations under their own power. The Observer Committee shall monitor the implementation of the operation. Recommend the application of the New York State minimum wage law standards to all work done by inmates. Every effort will be made to make a record of payments available to the inmates allow all New York state presidents to be politically active without intimidation or reprisal all true religious freedom five end censorship of newspapers magazines and other publications from publishers unless it is determined by a qualified authority which includes the Ombudsman, that the literature in question presents a clear and present danger to the safety and security of the institution institution only of letters um, so basically they can receive mail Six, allow all inmates at their own expense to communicate with anyone they please. Seven, institute realistic and effective rehabilitation programs for inmates according to their offense and personal needs. Eight, modernize the inmate education system, including the establishment of a Latin language library, by which they mean Spanish. Nine, provide an effective narcotics treatment program for all prisoners. Ten, provide, allow, or accommodate legal assistance to all inmates requesting it or legal assistance of their choice in whatsoever. In also proceedings, inmates shall be entitled to due process of law. 11. Reduce cell time, increase recreation time, provide better recreation facilities and equipment, hopefully by November 1st, 1971. 12. Provide a healthy diet, reduce the number of pork dishes, increase fresh fruit daily. Again, this is um, for the Islamic Brotherhood. Um, 13. Provide adequate medical treatment for every inmate engage a Spanish-speaking doctor or interpreters who can accompany Spanish-speaking inmates to medical interviews. 14. Establish an inmate grievance complaint commission comprised of one elected inmate from each company which is authorized to speak to the administration concerning grievances and develop other procedures. So it goes on and on. There's literally nothing here, and I can understand how some of this might take time, but there's nothing here that is unreasonable. And the whole idea is that all of these things should already be granted to prisoners under the Eighth Amendment, which puts a limit on cruel and unusual punishment. It also sets a limit on unreasonable bail. So their arguments, and they go on to talk about, you know, investigate claims that, you know, prisoners have had money stolen from them. All of these things break down just how bad things were in Attica. And certainly, if you know anything about prisons, which the majority of prisons in the United States are for-profit prisons today, things are just as bad today. They are maybe slightly better regulated, but when I talk about the outcomes of Attica, which are not great, unsurprisingly, you will see that a lot of this does fall on deaf ears. And a lot of it has to do with the way that everything plays out. So, essentially over the next couple of days, they go into massive negotiations between the head of the prison as well as then-governor of New York, Nelson Rockefeller. Now, Rockefeller, as I'm sure you are familiar with his family name, um, does not have a, a great history in his family of dealing with You know just the more difficult aspects of life Um, his father very famously in 1914 had um, machine guns striking miners in Ludlow Colorado so the Rockefellers don't see these petty grievances as really having any rights these are prisoners they don't have rights we're not going to negotiate with them And despite the fact that the prisoners get a number of very high-powered lawyers, people who had worked in civil rights and things like that, unfortunately, the way that the media spins this, they're making it out to be far worse. Now, eventually what happens is, is that they make the decision to take back the prison by force. And to do this... They use the state police, which is an interesting choice to use the state police over the National Guard, but that is the decision that they make. They decide that they are going to use tear gas to subdue the prisoners because most of them are outside in the yard. So all of those who are going in are going to be wearing gas masks, which makes communication very difficult. So there is immediately a lot of confusion from tear gas. There is immediately uh, very little communication. Um, And lastly, to take back the prison, they use roughly 4,500 rounds of ammunition. The ammunition that they use is actually banned by the Geneva Convention, so defined as cruel and unusual punishment in addition to this they are using buckshot they have pistols Um, it is as bloody as you possibly can imagine so in this process they don't know who they are shooting at they certainly target a lot of individuals but 43 people are killed in addition to um William Quinn I already mentioned And a number of these are actually hostages, so they are not prisoners. So in the melee, in the chaos, you have some of the hostages that they are supposedly going in to rescue killed. And there is a lot of misinformation that goes out immediately following this. That, you know, when they started to take back the prisoners, actually killed hostages, they were slitting throats. All of this, and um, I read some interesting stuff about the poor medical examiner who was the one that came out and said, no, these people were shot. When they were retaking the prison, they killed the hostages by accident. And I read a lot of accounts on both sides of this. So a lot of the accounts of, say, children of some of these guards who were killed as hostages, talking about the fact that they were given misinformation, how the state really did not acknowledge them for a long time. There was a lot of problems with this. And then immediately after the retaking of this, they not only take out all of their frustration, but the prisoners, even if they were not involved at all, are assumed to have been involved. And they are absolutely tortured for days after this to try to find out who was behind it all, This is some pretty dark stuff. Um, I read a couple of books about this. I have watched a couple of documentaries about this. Um, I know HBO actually just came out um, with one called Betrayal at Attica, which came out a couple of weeks ago. I did watch that. Um, Blood in the Water is... Probably the most recent book that's been published about Attica. It, there's a there's surprisingly little out there written about this. <laughs> um, to even try to find a list of all of the prisoners who were killed was almost impossible. It just doesn't exist. You can find lists of the guards and hostages that were killed, but to find the names of all of those killed is actually surprisingly different. Now, an important thing to remember about prison cemeteries is the fact that seldom are the inmates listed by name. Most often they are only listed by number, meaning their inmate number. So I can't definitively say that none of the victims of Attica are buried in the prison cemetery because the majority of the graves there are only identified by their number. And if you try to cross-reference it on find a grave and things like that, not every inmate is actually identified. I get the feeling, though, that with all things considered, probably nobody was buried there of the victims of the retaking of Attica. As I said, it's pretty easy to find a list of the hostages and guards who were killed. Uh, So Edward T. Cunningham, John J. D'Archangelo Jr., Elmer Hardy, Herbert W. Jones, Richard J. Lewis, John G. Monteleone, William Quinn, who I already mentioned, Carl Valone, Elon Werner, and then Ronald Warner. Mm, that's not my whole list. It goes on to the back of the page. Um, Harrison W. Whalen was the last. So that's all of them. As No, nope, actually I lied. No, nope. Harrison Whalen, there's a reason he was on the back page. So he did not die until about a month later. And this is an, a, a worthwhile thing to mention. For the most part... They were able to get the hostages and guards out quickly. Um, Many of the prisoners who were held afterwards, the ones who were wounded, were not treated. The estimates are that between 8 and 10 of those who were wounded during the retaking of Attica would have lived had they received medical attention, which is a major issue in and of itself. Because certainly if you were looking to uphold 8th Amendment rights against cruel and unusual punishment, they should have received medical treatment. And this was, of course, one of the things that they were seeking through all of their complaints at Attica was that they were looking for better, more efficient health care. And this is certainly, I think, that something that I, everyone can agree is an ongoing issue. The poor quality of food, uh, the lack of physical activity, lack of proper medical care. A lot of this stuff is a major issue with mass incarceration till today. So those guards and hostages I mentioned who were killed as part of the retaking of Attica. Again, there was not a proper memorial for them for many years. And it was so interesting just to read these accounts because the memorial was placed in 2014, 2015. And I can't remember exactly when it was. But reading some of the accounts of family members at the annual observances that are held at the prison... It was just fascinating to think that in this small town in Upper State New York, these folks, many of whom went to school together, graduated from school together, they didn't realize that they were both children of victims of Attica. And it says a lot about how much this was swept under the rug. Um, If you want to hear something to make you really angry, uh, listen to some of the recordings of Richard Nixon discussing this over the phone with Rockefeller talking about it and his attitude towards the race of the individuals involved in Attica, his just kind of complete lack of human empathy. It's pretty disturbing. Um, If you know anything about Watergate, you know that Richard Nixon recorded the majority of his conversations because he was hoping to make money off his memoirs after he left office. Um, But also... I would not be terribly proud of some of the things that got recorded. Certainly something to consider. Now, after that, I feel like maybe taking a step back is, is worthwhile. Um, but there's one more thing I do want to mention. And I was a little saddened to see. So there are a number of individuals who were sort of big players in Attica who afterwards were a big part of what became known as the Attica Brothers which was roughly 1,300 inmates who were involved in some aspect. And they fought for close to 40 years for acknowledgement of their rights and for restitution, which they did eventually receive restitution, which was not much when you divided it up. I believe they got something like 8 million in restitution, which when you divide it up among 1,300 people is not a whole lot per person. Um, And what they did was they tried to award it based on suffering and the level of abuse received following Attica. But for a long time, a lot of the information, including the findings of the McKay Commission, so McKay um, at the time was the NYU Dean of Law and was put in charge of the investigation into what happened, but so many of these individuals, even when they were released after they had served out their term, you know, had long term effects of this. And so probably the most famous Attica in May is a man who went by Big Black and he died back in 2004. And I was very sad. And so he was buried in North Carolina and I looked him up. And from what I can see, he still only has a temporary funeral home, like little metal marker. So he doesn't have a grave marker. Um, So these are individuals who not only were involved in Attica but went on to live lives where he was a huge advocate for prisoner rights and worked for the remainder of his life to do that didn't get a whole lot for the horrific suffering that he had occur. And then at the end of the day, you know, doesn't even have a decent grave marker in and of himself. And so I think that there's something to be said for that where these lingering effects of this prison term and mass incarceration continue to resonate for the remainder of these individuals' lives. Okay, now, (laughs) something slightly lighter. Um, To give you an idea of these, just something that's accessible to everyone, probably most people are familiar with the film The Shawshank Redemption. And I bring this up because I actually used screenshots from The Shawshank Redemption in the presentation that I did last year on the mass burials that happened during the 1918 influenza epidemic. Because many of the individuals that you can see in the shots of The Shawshank Redemption, and it's a shot where... Morgan Freeman and some of the other prisoners are, you know, raking and cleaning up the prison cemetery. And this is, in fact, a real prison cemetery. It is the prison cemetery at the Ohio State Reformatory in Mansfield, Ohio. It was built between 1886 and 1910, and it was in use until 1990. And when it was closed in 1990, it was closed by federal order because of a class action lawsuit, which I kind of briefly mentioned this earlier they alleged that overcrowding of this at this point 100-year-old prison was causing borderline inhumane conditions so a lot like the complaints that were being made at Attica where you're ha- you have an aging building that can no longer serve the population that lives there these are enormous buildings they cost a lot to heat they cost a lot to upkeep and repair and unfortunately over time, the deterioration happens so quickly, it's not like you can bring work crews in to fix these things. Um, it's very interesting. A friend of mine who does metal work, he and I had discussed this because he used to go in and he used to do metalworking in prisons. And talked about the challenges of it because there is not a lot of time to do this work. It's very difficult because they keep to a very strict schedule. So often they would have to go in and do repairs in the middle of the night because that was the only time that they were able to access they were able to get into these like highly locked down areas to do repairs on like stoves and furnaces and all of this type of thing so it's difficult to bring these buildings up to code because they continue to be in use and they're already being overused because of overcrowding and lack of new facilities so it's interesting to me that the one example that most people have probably seen just from it being on television all the time is actually a pretty good representative example of a prison cemetery and what it looks like and It's interesting if you read some of the bios on find a grave for the cemetery, which I remember doing last year when I did this research. A lot of them died during the influenza epidemic, both black and white prisoners. Um, There's actually a prison guard who was killed as part of a riot that happened at the prison who's buried in the cemetery. I'm not sure if he didn't have a family to claim his remains, and so they buried him there. But if you look at that, and if you watch that scene, it's towards the end of the movie, you can see this, that again, they only have a number stamped. So there is no name, there are no dates for the individuals, you just have their inmate number. And almost all of these cemeteries do have that. There are some examples, uh, particularly prisons that may have had either a metalworking shop or some sort of like vocational shop where they may have made individual markers for these. So I read of one example that was actually a prison cemetery down in Florida where they had like a license plate shop. So they would make license plates and attach them to concrete. And that's actually the markers that were used for the inmates in the cemetery. Florida is an interesting example. Florida is actually the last state to abolish convict leasing. Um, and like I said, these are being produced not just in cemeteries, but on prison farms and things like that through the 1920s. Now, when I started looking at these, certainly I just mentioned a very noteworthy example in Ohio, but the overwhelming majority of these do tend to be in the South. Now, that's not to say that prisons in the North don't have cemeteries. They just tend to not be quite as big or on such a large scale as the ones in the South. Now, the largest prison cemetery that I have found is um, Captain Joe Bird Cemetery, which is in Huntsville, Texas. Um, Who was Joe Bird? So Joe Bird was the assistant warden of the Huntsville unit. And he was the one that took the initiative back in 1962 to clean up the existing cemetery. He tried to make it look a little bit nicer. Now, this is located in a pretty prominent spot in Huntsville, Texas. Um, It's actually right behind Sam Houston State University. Um, So it's decently centrally located. It's not right, obviously, on the prison property. It's a separate tract of land. So back in the 60s, when Joe Bird cleaned it up, there was about 900 graves. Now, today, there are still roughly 100 burials per year, which is quite a lot. But when you consider the population of Texas and when you consider how many people are incarcerated in Texas, it makes a little bit more sense. So the cemetery today has grown to 22 acres, which means that there are still – this is still a very crowded cemetery – It uh, has the charming nickname of Peckerwood Hill. They don't know exactly how many graves there are because they didn't keep great records until around the turn of the century. Um, But the estimate is that there are several thousand. Um, And the estimate is, is that the earliest burials probably happened in the 1850s. So it's very historic, particularly by Texas standards in terms of developments and things like that. I did read an article that says that they do spend roughly $2,000 per prisoner burial. And it's fascinating because what you see is that often prisoners encourage their family to let the state bury them, particularly when their family is so often trapped in a cycle of poverty. And when you consider the cost of funerals, they say, you know, Just let the state bury me. Don't come and claim my body. And the state does allow for funerals. They do allow people to come out. If you have a pastor who served you, you can have a pastor come out and say your um, funeral service. Otherwise, you will be assigned a funeral chaplain. Now, often there is no family. And in which case, the convict work detail who buries you because they dig the graves themselves they will be the only witnesses to your funeral. But more often than not, families do attend and they agree to come out and participate, even though this is a state-funded funeral, and they come out to mourn their loved one. And this is something that I don't think that is really discussed. But in almost every example that I found where, you know, and lots of, local newspapers seem to do these kind of human interest stories where they interview people. I found a number of articles on the point lookout cemetery in West Feliciana parish in Louisiana, which you are, you are familiar with Louisiana and Louisiana prisons. You know, that's where Angola is located. This is another one of the largest. Um, There is the Alana hunt. Cemetery in St. Gabriel, Louisiana, Mississippi State Penitentiary in Parchman, Mississippi, the State Penitentiary Cemetery, which is called Tickleberry or known as Tickleberry in Columbia, South Carolina. Um, Alabama has three. Draper is the female inmate cemetery, which you hear, that, that's the only place I've read about that really talked about female convicts as opposed to male. The majority of the um, articles that I read were about male convicts. Um, fountain and limestone and in the states where there are multiple prison cemeteries often what they do is they pick something that's centrally located so because they have smaller facilities you are buried at whatever is the closest to your area Um, here in Georgia the prison cemetery is down in Reidsville though I know that there are older prison cemeteries I know there's at least one near Milledgeville And then, of course, you have smaller ones scattered throughout. And so I only, that's by no means a complete list. Those were just ones that I found, like, significant articles on. So aside from the fact that people opt for this, what else do you see in these cemeteries? Well, for the most part, I can say that they are well-maintained. And they are mainly well-maintained because you have a virtually free workforce, where they are able to use convict work crews to keep them clean and upkept. Now, in terms of the conditions of the markers, that is a little bit on the sketchier side. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that these markers are made of not the best materials. They are often small And if you are using like lawnmowers and things like that, you are going to damage them easily. The overwhelming majority of them are concrete from what I have seen. Like I said, you do have some places that have either a metal shop or something else where they might do work. But these are very institutional looking. Some of the busier, more modern ones definitely put a little bit more detail on. But the older ones, almost always you only have the inmate number. Also, when you have these markers in poor condition, it's not like they're trying to do preservation. It's not like they're trying to keep them up. Now, um, the example that I mentioned, the State Penitentiary Cemetery up in South Carolina, it was very interesting because I actually read the archaeological survey from, um, I believe it was the Chikora Foundation, who had done the archaeological work out there and had done the research. And so that was actually a very interesting read um, where they tried to trace that and they looked at the older burials, which probably had wooden markers and used GPR data. Um, In this case, because the cemetery had been cut off from the prison property, which, like I said, this happens pretty frequently, where it is near the prison, but it is not on prison property. Sometimes they're separated and like development grows up in between, and that can cause issues. In this case, they had actually sold the land, and that became problematic because obviously there are burials on it. So um, I can link that up because it's definitely, if you are interested in not just prison cemetery archaeology, but just in archaeology in general and what they can learn uh, from analyzing. Historic photographs and historic maps and all that type of stuff. I was actually amazed at how many photos they had of inmates doing burials there. So it was a really fascinating read and definitely something that I think is worth looking at. If you want to kind of understand how these were run and what it looked like. Now, to circle back why I think that this is important. And I think that you could do a whole series on institutional burials, which I know I did a post back in June, um, speaking of Milledgeville, uh, looking at the state hospital down there. I have been to a number of state hospital cemeteries. They are very frequently quite similar to what you see in prison cemeteries, um, state reform schools, like all of these institutional places. So a state hospital, if you are not familiar with the term, is sort of an archaic use of language for a mental hospital. And state hospitals were publicly funded, and they were everywhere. There has been sort of a blitzkrieg of removals of them over the past decade or so, because again, like prisons, they are very large and very expensive to upkeep, and the majority of them are abandoned and no longer in use. Um, But... Almost every state in the United States had one, at least one. They all had cemeteries. And it was the same thing that people would send their relatives away and they would die far from home and they would be buried in the cemetery that was part of the institution, often with nothing more than a number to identify them. So these institutional cemeteries unfortunately tend to be very neglected. They tend to be forgotten and people often don't know what they are because they don't always look like cemeteries. Prisons, it seems like most of them do, um, but for a long time at Milledgeville, they had nothing but small metal markers, which wouldn't immediately look like a gravestone to people. So I think that it's difficult to do a whole episode on these because without giving like you an exhaustive list of where these exist, it's very difficult to do research on them because the people who work in them are often incarcerated themselves. There's not a whole lot of public records about them. And just to give sort of interesting stories, there often aren't a lot because we don't know that much about these individuals. So I apologize that this episode felt a little bit more cobbled together than they normally do. Um, I think Attica is an important thing to mark and I think that the idea that we don't even have a very accurate accounting of the people who died and what happened to them afterwards um, aside from what I would consider I don't want to say fringe elements because it's that that's not correct but uh, a dedicated group of individuals who were seeking economic and more importantly legal justice for these individuals for the abuse that they suffered after Attica Aside from that group, it seems like the state, the correctional facility, no one else is really trying to memorialize these individuals. And as I said, it took almost 50 years even for the employees who were killed as part of the retaking of the prison to have a full memorial. I think it's important to remember that just because an individual is incarcerated does not mean that they are completely bereft of rights. It doesn't mean that they don't deserve a dignified burial, and it doesn't mean that these cemeteries are any less significant or any less important. I think, if anything, they actually say a lot more about our society. So I think that it's something important to consider. And as much as there might not be a comprehensive body of research on them, They are nonetheless fascinating. And certainly, if you are a longtime listener of the podcast, like these stories are kind of like traced in between. You know, when I talked about Andersonville, I talked about some of the folks who were executed after the Civil War and how they were originally buried close to the places that they were executed. Looking at further back at different stories, a lot of these things. Uh, I know when I did my problematic burials episode, I talked about um, those who assassinated presidents and what happened to their bodies. These are important stories, especially when you consider what a large swath of the population this does represent. As always, if you are enjoying the podcast, please subscribe so you can get new episodes whenever they're released. And also, please rate and review. It does help me become a lot more searchable for individuals out there that are looking for cemetery content. In addition... Please follow along on social media, Tomb of the View podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Always sharing interesting little tidbits over there to enhance the podcast experience for those of you who are a little bit more visually oriented. And if you want to get a hold of me for any reason, please feel free to email Tomb of the View podcast at gmail.com. Lots more exciting things coming up in the near future. I've been working on a lot of stuff. I know that this episode's coming out a day late again. Um, Slightly overwhelmed, but still trying to stay on schedule as much as I can. So I appreciate everybody's patience with that. But I hope that everyone has a wonderful long weekend. Get some rest from your labors. And I will see you next week. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View.